And so today we are in the fourth week of our series, Six Weeks of Purpose. And um, I can't believe how fast this series is going. But if you're new today, or maybe you just haven't been in a few weeks, uh, what we're looking at in this series is um, really what it means, how we can discover our God-given purpose as individuals in our lives. The series before this, in August, we kind of talked about what the purpose of the corporate church is, and, and specifically our purpose as a church here at Citizen Church, but we just really felt like it's so important at this time, right now, where we are as a society, for you to understand that God has so much for you as an individual. Um, and this is straight from scripture, and everything we're talking about, we're going on a six-week journey, um, really trying to help discover how we can know what our God-given purpose is. We started week one um, talking about our starting point, and we kind of developed, and it's growing through the series. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, that every one of us has access to gifts from the Holy Spirit, supernatural gifts. And we ended showing you guys a resource page with that gifts assessment. And we've had well over a thousand people go to that page uh, looking to discover uh, their spiritual gifts. I think that's worth a round of applause. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, and so it's so important. But building on top of that today, before I tell you our subject, I wanna ask you this. I find myself doing this a lot. Have you ever looked at the New Testament and looked at the New Testament church, the book of Acts and beyond, and even looked into church history in the second and third centuries and looked at the revival that took place back then. It felt like every time they gathered as a church, some crazy thing was happening and, and the gospel was advancing all over the known world. It just took a couple hundred years for it to be all through the Roman Empire. Christianity was a force to be reckoned with. In, that first, in those first few centuries. And, and today, you know, I study that, and I don't know about you, but have you ever looked back then and thought, what were they doing differently than we are today? What were, what were the ingredients? Were they so different back then than what we're doing today? Why aren't we seeing the same things? Because the truth is, there is a giant gap between what God did back then and what God is doing today through the church. Not necessarily because God isn't choosing to do something today through the church, but what is the difference? And I think there's two main things. One of them is what we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit, and would love for you to check out that message if you weren't here. And today, the other thing that I believe was one of the central focuses of why the church back then was so much more effective than today was how they did relationships with each other. The intentionality they had with other human beings and how they treated other human beings, and how other human beings treated them. There was something very special, and when you look at the New Testament church, you can kind of pull a, a formula out of it, and I want them to put this on the screen, and this is basically what we see in the New Testament. It's sacrificial commitment, plus authentic friendships, plus generous partnerships, equals purposeful relationships. And that's what I wanna talk about today is purposeful relationships. Because when we're talking about this journey over six weeks to discover at the end of this, our God-given purpose, we cannot skip over how much other people around us shape who we are and our effectiveness or lack of effectiveness in the kingdom of God. It, the amount of intentionality we put into other things other than relationships, for myself, it's astonishing when you, when you really think about it. The amount of intentionality most of us would put into buying a car, buying a house, 
The intentionality we put into discovering, you know, trying to figure out what schools our kids might go to or what neighborhood we wanna live in or what city we want to settle down in, what our career is going to be, the intentionality we put into that. And then, I mean, mostly, generally speaking, the lack of intentionality we put into people that have access to shaping our lives is kind of scary. Some of us, the closest people to us are the people we randomly sat next to in a classroom, no intentionality. It could be randomly a teammate. It could be randomly someone we met somewhere. I'm not saying they're a bad person. I'm not saying that they're necessarily a bad influence, but what would it look like if we took a step back and we looked, biblically speaking, at how we can be intentional with the relationships closest to us that are shaping who we are? If you're a parent of a teenager, you stress, or you should be stressing over who your kids are close to because it is molding them and making them. But then when it comes to us, we're the same flawed human being. Who's molding and shaping us? I think another thing oftentimes we look at where we are in Western society, people primarily put their identity into two things right now in this cultural moment. They'll put their identity into sexuality or careers, careers and money. And right now, in this span, it'll change, but right now, it's sexuality and, and career. So what that means is, people will move their family for a career rather than building their family around relationships. Because it's relationships that should be multi-decade long. We should have, as Christians, relationships that go 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and I'm not saying those can't you know, travel with you geographically or last a lifetime over different parts of the country. But what I am saying is this, very rarely do we make life-changing decisions based on relationships. And what we do see is that happens over and over and over again in scripture. I believe that if we were to take relationships more seriously, it would radically change our lives as individuals, radically change our families, and radically change our communities and cities. So, Here's what, here's what I wanna talk about. I think the church is unique. I, I know people can have long two, three, four, five decade friendships outside of church, I know that. But the church is very unique because it transcends sports and little leagues and, and jobs and careers. It transcends all of these things to where we really can, at the end of our lives, have friendships that have lasted 60 and 70 years. I've had friendships of people sitting in this room. I've been friends since we were born, since we were five years old, 10 years old, 20 years old. Hopefully by the end of my life, I can be at you know, 85, 90, 120. That's what I'm hoping for, 120 years old. And I'll, I'll have friends that span 70, 80 years for one reason, church. We have a unique opportunity. There was a book I read about 17 years ago that changed the, my, my life, really. Uh, it's a biblical book, absolutely based on the Bible, in regards to relationships. I read it and it changed my whole perspective on my intentionality with relationships in my life. Uh, the author's name is Leonard Sweet, and this book is called The 11 Indispensable Relationships You Can't Be Without. It's a very long title. We just call it 11. I think we can put up a resource page for you with that. Leonard Sweet, 11 Indispensable Relationships You Can't Be Without. So again, here, I've, I have never read another book by Leonard Sweet. I am not endorsing an author. So like, don't come back to me next week and go, you endorse this guy? No, I'm just endorsing this book, okay? And what he talks about is, biblically speaking, there are 11, and the 11th one is a place, not a person. So today I'm gonna be talking about 10, but I'm not doing 10, 
hold on. So I'm gonna be talking about 10 essential relationships, biblically speaking, we need in our lives. I took this so seriously 17 years ago. It radically changed my life because the Western approach to friendship is awful, awful. The biblical approach changes your life, your family, your community, your society. And it all comes back to what does the Bible actually talk about? And I do recommend this book also, put that back up just real quick. On the other side of this is um, the additional relationship. So this sermon is part one, part two. I came in this last Wednesday in our recording studio and and recorded six through 10 on the relationship. So I'm gonna do one through five this morning. And when we release the YouTube video this afternoon for this message, part two that we recorded in the studio will come up at the same time two different videos on our YouTube channel. So you, if you're like a fill-in-the-blank person like me, you're gonna have gaps. We did it on purpose. So you can go watch that video. Okay, so you can go watch the video and, and look into what those last six are. And so hopefully you guys will do that this afternoon. So let's jump right into this today. And the title of the, or the header is 10 Biblical Purposeful Relationships. 10 relationships that if we have in our lives, our lives will look different. As we go through these, I also want you to think about not just gaining these relationships, but also when you're looking at these, who are you to other people? Who are you to other people? The first one is Nathan. You need a Nathan, an editor. You need a Nathan, an editor. Who in the world is Nathan? Nathan is a prophet in the Old Testament at the time of King David. King David in the Old Testament um, is obviously like, he's like, you know, one of the most famous guys in scripture, also has one of the lowest moments of any person that we would call a hero in the Bible. Um, At the time, in the the beginning of this chapter that's highlighted, it says this, the first verse, at the times when kings should have been at war, David remained at the palace. It sets the stage for David was not where he was supposed to be. He's on the palace roof one day. He sees a woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. She has a husband off at battle. David, at that time, also has his wife, but he wants Bathsheba, so he brings her in, sleeps with her, has an affair, and she gets pregnant. Those of you that know the story know that David doesn't just stop there. He wants to cover it up. He has her husband killed, all of these different things, and he feels like everything is protected. He hid it. He swept it under the rug, but then Nathan comes along. Nathan is the prophet of God. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet speaks to the king. And so some time goes on, and Nathan comes to King David after God tells him what had happened. And he tells him this story, almost like a riddle. And David doesn't understand that in the middle of this story, he's the main character of the story, and Nathan is giving David a shot to come clean with what he did, and he doesn't. And finally, at the end of this story, he says, Nathan, the man in the story, it's not made up. That man is you. And it stops David dead in his tracks. His plan didn't work because he forgot one thing. God sees everything. So Nathan points at him and says, you're that man. But something about Nathan being an editor in David's life stopped David dead in his tracks. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel 7, 18. It says, then David, the king, went in and sat before the Lord. What does that mean? There are interesting phrases like this in scripture that you can just read past and not understand the depth of meaning. David was the king. He went in and sat before no one. People came in and sat before him, but that was the problem. He was used to people coming in and bowing down to him, and he had stopped bowing down to God. When Nathan the editor points his finger, this prophet at David, and says, you're the man, 
It stops David in his tracks, brings humility and repentance back to David, and he goes into the temple and he sits before the Lord. So let me ask you, who's your editor? Who's the person in your life that loves you, believes in you enough, but that will point you out and say, God sees this. It doesn't even have to be sin. It could just be something to make you better. It's in love, it's packaged in love, but who's the person who can point at something? It stops you in your tracks and makes you sit before the Lord. One of the biggest problems that people face is they don't have an editor in their life. We put so much pressure on one person being all 10 of these things. Why isn't my spouse this? And why isn't my best friend doing all the things a best friend is supposed to do, right? Because we have the wrong mentality on relationships. We put all the pressure on one person and we go into marriage thinking, this is the person that's supposed to fulfill every aspect and relational need that I have. And that's just not the truth. Who's our editor who can come in and say, it's time to sit before the Lord? The name Nathan ironically means gift. This doesn't really feel like a gift from God, but it's the greatest gift from God. Someone in love, but also sincerity, and someone who has confidence coming up and saying, you gotta fix something. There's something in your life that you don't see that you need to fix, and I see it. It's an editor. Um, in, in college, I was in a preaching lab class, and we were getting ready to write our second sermon, the second sermon I'd ever really written, or, t- or at that point, a full-length sermon. And the second sermon that we had written, we were given permission, it was a narrative sermon, which meant we had so much creative freedom in how we packaged it as long as it landed with contextual biblical truth. So I, I took the, the, the concept of guilt and mercy and personified them and wrote this whole sermon about guilt and mercy and, and how they were people and characters. And, and it, was, it was I just had a blast with it. And I was like, my last sermon, the first sermon, whew, that was awful. But this creative license, I was like, I actually, I actually like this one. This one's good. I turn it in, we turn in the rough draft, and then we get back the edits from the professor. When I got back that paper, because back then it was actual paper, I got back that paper, if I held it up, there was so much red on it, it looked like I was like holding up like a dead carcass and just bleeding, right? Because there was so much red from his edits. And I'm looking at this coin. I put my heart and soul into this. I was creative. I actually thought it was good. And the very last page, the professor said, come see me in my office this afternoon. I'm like, are you kidding me? What in the world? Like, I'm quitting. I'm not even gonna be a pastor. I mean, this is I mean, the whole thing, right? So I go sit down with him, and he has this big smile on his face, and I start off, and I said, I am so sorry. I did not mean, and he stops me right in the middle of my apology because I'd seen so many edits, and he said, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? And he said, Dustin, I love your sermon. I love it. I went, what? I said, well, I held it up, and I was like, well, then what's this? And he said, let me tell you something. I want you to know something about me. The more red you see, on things you write, the more I believe in the potential of your final product. That's, that red is a sign of how much I love what you're writing and doing. And it changed my whole perspective. And he said, I actually want you to teach this next week in class, and I'm getting your permission to print this in the university paper. And I was like, what? I was about to quit this morning. You know, like, I was about to quit pastoring, right? But what was so cool is that it was the potential of the final product. Sometimes we can get offended by an editor. And I'm not talking about someone who enjoys finding things. That is not an editor. That's just a jerk. An editor is someone sent by God who loves you and the potential of you being the final product that God wants to develop in your life and the potential of your purpose. And they're saying, I'm gonna say things that other people don't say because I believe you can actually be who God has called you to be. And that's what Nathan was doing with King David. A Nathan in your life 
Nathans, number one, are welcome intruders. Let that sink in, are welcome intruders. They're intruding, but it's kind of like, you know, when your kids' friends come over to the house and they're, they're all coming in and you know that your refrigerator's gonna get ransacked, but they're welcome, but they're intruding. You know, that's kind of like an editor, right? That was, that was totally a made-up story. That never happens with us. Okay, number two, Nathans ask questions. They ask questions. They're that one person in your life that you know. They're just gonna ask you that question. Hey, I noticed you were on that trip and I only saw pictures of you and her. Who else was there? Did you guys get married and I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that? You know, like, what, what's going on? You know, that, uh, Nathan's just gonna ask you and you're like, this is so awkward. And you're like, yeah, well, Nathan's don't get awkward. They're those people, right? Nathan's number three, tell the truth. Tell the truth. You know, I, I, my dad um, is, is not a Nathan. He does tell the truth, but he's not a Nathan. <laughs> that sounded bad. Nathan's tell the truth. My dad's not one. Okay, no, but I... <laughs> My dad, if you don't know, is the pastor here for 28 years before me, and, and every time I'm done, pre- he's out of town today, but every time I get done preaching, I go back to the green room, and every sermon I ever preach is the best sermon he's ever heard. And I know he's not telling the truth, but I'm just like, I don't care, just lie. I mean, just, I walk back, he's like, that's the best sermon. I'm like, oh, shuck, you know, like, it's all right. I, I know he's not telling the truth. My dad makes a horrible Nathan, horrible Nathan. He's not gonna walk up to you and go, hey, um, I really need to critique point three. It just, that did not go over well at all. That is not my dad. My dad's role in your life is to be your biggest fan, right? That's a Barnabas. That's later today in part two. But Nathans are the ones that are like, I love you, but hey, come here for a second. Um, I think you need to fix a few things that I noticed. And you're like, ah, you love them. They love you, but it can sting. The next relationship is a Jonathan. You need a Jonathan, a true friend. This one also revolves around King David. You see a lot of Jonathan's story in 1 Samuel 18, and he's a true friend. Why why is Jonathan a true friend? Because a true friend is someone who loves you as himself or herself. Jonathan, in the story of King David, you've got to put all the, the characters in their place here, right? You've got King David, who is the future king, so he's not the king yet, he's just David. You've got King Saul, at this time, who is the current king of Israel, right, but had kind of walked away from God, so that's why God anointed David to be the next king. And then you have Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, the king's son is the successor until God says, I'm moving the kingship away from the line of Saul, and I'm giving it to the line of David. And somehow in this story, you would think, if you were the one writing this story, there's gonna be a rivalry and a battle at the end of this movie between Jonathan and David, unlike this world has ever seen, but that battle never comes because Jonathan serves God more than he serves man, and he's gonna serve God's man because he serves God. And Jonathan befriends David, and David befriends Jonathan, and Jonathan ends up being, I think, outside of Jesus, the greatest picture of friendship in the entire Bible, of laying his life, his future, what should have been his, because of God and what God was doing in someone else's life. A Jonathan is your champion, a true friend. A Jonathan is loyal when you make it hard to be loyal. You're like, well, I've never made it hard to be loyal, but they do, Ready? okay. A Jonathan is loyal when you make it hard to be loyal. A Jonathan is the first to call in good times or bad. A Jonathan gives and gives and wants no payment in return. A Jonathan walks with you in all seasons. A Jonathan isn't someone that you have this month and it changes next month. A Jonathan is someone that develops in your life and can last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the rest of your life. A Jonathan is important 
because a Jonathan sees you as someone who can accomplish anything and a Jonathan is someone who will support you fully, all in on your life. Now that kind of sounds selfish, right? But the key here is you need to be a Jonathan. You need to be a Nathan. That I can, I can, I can say, hey, I need a Jonathan if I'm being a Jonathan. It's so important for us to look, like, look at this. So, okay, so when I was thinking about like, what's a great like pop culture movie book, the, the best version of a Jonathan out there? So my favorite movie, or I guess series of movies of all time, and I say every, almost every movie I go see, I say that's my new favorite movie, but this one's the truth. My favorite movie or, or series of movies of all times, and I don't think there's any, anything greater than Lord of the Rings, the original Lord of the Rings. Can I get an amen? All right, all right. So here, my perfect picture of a Jonathan is none other than Samwise Gamgee, okay? You've got Frodo who has this, ma- I'm gonna preach Frodo for a second, just bear with me. You've got, you've got Frodo who has this huge calling on his life to take the ring to Mordor, right? And, and throw it into the fires of Mount Doom, right? He's got this huge purpose on his life and he's the only one, he's the guy. And then you've got Samwise who's like, I'm gonna protect him, this is my guy, I'm going with him, I'm gonna do anything. And there's times where Frodo's like, no, Sam, don't go. And Sam's like, no, Frodo, I'm coming. And you know, they're doing, I'm like, he can't get rid of Sam because Sam is looking at him like, you've got a job to do. You've got to get to that mountain. You've got to throw that ring in that fire and I'm going to take you there. I mean, Sam's carrying him when Frodo couldn't walk. That's a Jonathan. That's a good Jonathan. You're like, I don't have that in my life. We may never have a Sam, but we can have a Jonathan, right? So it's so important though, because we need someone in our life. As your light gets brighter and your star gets bigger, they're okay with their light getting dimmer, and that's tough. But if these relationships work like they're supposed to in a symbiotic way, then the same way someone does that for you, you're doing that for someone else. You're saying, I'm going to, I'm gonna allow, I want, not allow, I want your light to get brighter, and I'm okay with standing back here saying, just clapping and saying, that's my friend. That's my friend, as their light gets brighter, who cares? That's my friend, and that is being a Jonathan, and when we are a Jonathan, when we are one, we get one. A Jonathan, three quick things. A Jonathan, number one, is a true friend and not a best friend. There's a difference. Western friendships, like I said, the way we do it in America is broken. We, we put friendships like in a hierarchy. We do this since we were like four. Like, who's your best friend? Well, my best friend is so-and-so, my second best friend my third best friend, my fourth best friend. Think about the insecurity, like walking to the playground and like, hey, fourth best friend, why don't you come over and hang out with me? Fourth? Who's one, two, and three? You know, like you're, you're, you're like, this, this is horrible. And then like your best friend changes every year. I remember talking to my oldest daughter and like, you know, she's 10, she's like, this is my best friend and she's gonna be my maid of honor. She's my best friend. Like you won't know her next year. And I've never been wrong about it. You know, it's like, cause this whole best friend thing, so it's not real. Because a best friend, we put this pressure on the best friend to have all of these aspects of these relationships. And that best friend can't do it. But a true friend isn't your editor. There's not, there, aren't, there aren't these other things. Your true friend is a companion that's with you, that supports you and lasts decades. Number two, a Jonathan does not ask what's in it for me. It's a mentality that's just not there. They can be human every once in a while and that can flare up for sure. But I'm saying a Jonathan predominantly is not in this friendship to say, what am I getting out of this? A Jonathan, number three, is not afraid of closeness. 
is not afraid of intimacy, being close. And that's something we're lacking so much in our society is genuine intimacy. If someone knocks on our door at our house, we go into freak out mode. I mean, it's like the, our kids are running away from the door. Like, ah, somebody just knocked on them. They're like running away. And I'm like, I remember when I was little, somebody would knock on the door. and be like, mom, someone's here. And I would run to the door. Now if someone knocks, everybody's like, ah. Are, you, are we the only crazy ones? I mean, what? it's like, how dare you? Like if someone calls me without texting me first, I'm like, like calling me? Like, I mean, like, isn't it weird? Like, we're so afraid of closeness and intimacy, we pushed people away. Dan Montgomery, a clinical psychologist, wrote about this and the levels, and he, he calls this the elevator system, levels of intimacy, and he said this, the intimacy elevator starts with the facade level or level of public appearances. Here, people relate through social custom. Conversations are filled with small talk about the weather, sports, earthquakes, families, and the state of the world. This is a valuable and necessary stage, a valuable and necessary stage for getting acquainted and for doing business with people we don't know well. The next floor down is the acquaintance level. We reveal some of our private sentiments and opinions. At this level, we present more of our views on politics, religion, sex, and marriage. There is some risk that people will take offense. However, most people know how to participate in these exchanges without taking it personally. To reach the third floor down, the friendship level, we must willingly experience emotional vulnerability. At this level, we share all sorts of feelings, yet hold back on the deeper ones. We look for compatibility, empathy, and mutual trust. If all goes well and the other person responds at the same level, we may choose to tell, take the elevator down another floor. The fourth floor down is the intimacy level. We come clean with the dark side, the memories, wounds, and reflections that make us who we are but that can feel shameful to disclose. We also share the heart's desires. Society now is saying, reserve all of that fourth level for a counselor or a pastor. I, and I promote going to counselors. I, I go to a counselor. We need to. But we rob our relationships of genuine intimacy and lasting friendship if we reserve levels of intimacy for professionals Yes, people need to earn it. Yes, there needs to be time. I'm not saying go open up to someone in the atrium and tell them everything. But what I'm saying is we are robbing ourselves of what makes friendships last, what makes relationships um, authentic and genuine and life-changing if we're not willing to be open to closeness and intimacy. Proverbs 18:24 says, some friends play at friendship, but a true friend sticks closer than one's nearest kin. We can't play at friendship. We have to be a true friend. The next one we need, the next relationship, the third one is we need a Zacchaeus, an outcast. We need a Zacchaeus, an outcast. There's this guy named Zacchaeus in uh, the New Testament in Luke chapter 19, and there's, he is a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector who collects taxes from Jewish people on behalf of the Romans. So this guy's an outcast. Romans don't like him because they think he's a sellout, and Jewish people don't like him because he is a sellout, and he is robbing the Jews, and he is a Jewish guy. And the Bible also tells us that Zacchaeus is a wee little man, and a wee little man is he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. So yeah. Yeah. Do you guys want to sing the song? Yeah? Okay. 
Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore. All right, that's weird. Okay, so <laughs> Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and Jesus is coming through town. He's an outcast, and he can't see Jesus because he is a wee little man. So he goes up into the tree, and he is looking to find Jesus, and Jesus finds him. And of all the people in this town, as Jesus is, is walking through, who does Jesus want to go to lunch with? Now, you got to think about this. Public perception. Jesus, ha I mean, can you imagine being Jesus' PR guy? I mean, this guy is following him with a clipboard stressed out 24-7. So, I mean, he's walking through town, and Zacchaeus, who is robbing the Jewish people, and the Romans don't like him because he's a sellout, Jesus goes, Zacchaeus, what are you doing? And Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, and he says, hey, guys, I want to go to lunch at this guy's house. That's a bad PR move because Zacchaeus was an outcast. But Jesus is in the business of finding outsiders and bringing them in to become insiders. It doesn't matter what someone has done. It doesn't matter what their lifestyle is. According to scripture, in Christ, there is no such thing as an outsider. We are all in the family of God in Christ. And Jesus is constantly through his spirit drawing people close to him that society has said, you're on the outside. Zacchaeus was on the outside. Who is a Zacchaeus in our lives? A Zacchaeus is someone you normally wouldn't associate with for whatever reason. A Zacchaeus might be socially awkward. Someone who can't practically benefit your life in this season. A Zacchaeus is someone who has no problem taking your time or money. Some of you guys are like, it's my teenager. They're my Zacchaeus. <laughs> A Zacchaeus is someone that others intentionally don't invite places. A Zacchaeus, an outcast. You know, the most humbling part about this, you're kind of going through this going, man, this is kind of like, it's a little harsh, isn't it? Like we have to go, we have to like have an outcast. Here's the truth though. You guys are all thinking about who might be your outcast, but someone's thinking of you as their outcast. <laughs> I was, that's humbling. I, I was writing this message this week and I was talking with, with Mandy about these points. I said, Mandy, I think I know whose outcast I am. Like I do. Like I've been around him like, they're, yeah, yep, I'm their outcast. I'm their Zacchaeus. I, I'm their wee little man, right? Like I, I'm, I'm it. And I'm, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do, right? But here's, here's what's so cool is we need someone in our life. This is basically it. We need someone in our life always, always. So I think God is always watching us. We need someone in our life that, that we have in our life to only pour into, to get nothing back. Where, because it's, such the, it's the essence of Christianity. Because Jesus came for all mankind, even the people that would never respond to the call of salvation. He still died for them and is giving every person who ever lived the chance to call on the name of Jesus. He poured himself out for everyone, knowing that only some would come to him. And it's our job to pour into someone at least, multiple, but at least someone who can benefit our life practically in this season or what we can see at least, because they will benefit our lives, but from what we see, they can't. Jesus interacted, I love this, Jesus interacted with every person as simply another person who just needed the love of Christ. There's just another person in need of love. According to Jesus, there's no such thing as other, there's only such thing as one another. We have this tendency to say, well, they're, they're the others, that other group, that other person, the other, 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 but everything Jesus stood for, there's no such thing as other. There's only one another. And if we treat people as one another, then we'll have the mindset of Jesus walking into that town. 
where people say, you can't, have, you can't go to that guy's house, Jesus. You cannot do it. And he says, why? Why? I don't know. It, it, it looks bad. I don't care how it looks. He needs what I have. And I'm gonna go to his house. And I'm gonna teach you guys that are with me, that are telling me not to, that there's only such thing as one another. There's no such thing as other. And it's so important for us to remember that in Christ, we are no longer outsiders. Jesus is constantly drawing us in. It's our, our vision verse comes from Ephesians chapter two, where it explicitly says that in Christ, there is no such thing as a foreigner, stranger, outsider. We are all part of the family of God. We are all citizens of heaven. Zacchaeus was in need of someone as an outcast to say, you're an outcast no more. I'm going to befriend you. You need a Zacchaeus because you are a Zacchaeus to someone else. The next one, the fourth one is, you need a Timothy, a protege. You need a Timothy, a protege. Who is Timothy in scripture? So Timothy was the protege or apprentice of the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul, when you study his leadership on top of his theology, I mean, this, this, he is a stud because it just feels like he's good at everything, right? And so he's, he's great at theology. He's a great writer. He's a great orator. He's a great leader. And he is so good at developing people. And Timothy is, is probably his prized protege. A Timothy in our lives is a protege, an heir, an apprentice, possibly a younger, less mature version of us. I, I know you guys, it doesn't, you don't have to be very old at all to have come across someone maybe in the church circles or in a small group or wherever, but with your Christian lens on, looking at this person, we've all had this moment where we thought, that person frustrates me like crazy, but I was just like them. That might be your Timothy. Because God hardwires us in ways where we, are, we can be so effective helping grow people and mentor people who might be susceptible to the same mistakes, patterns, habits, ways of life, ways of viewing life as we have had growing up. And your Timothy might be the person who frustrates you that you might look at and go, they remind me so much of me. That might be your Timothy. But we need a Timothy because at the essence of what a Timothy is, it's discipleship. It's another, another huge missing thing, and by and large in the church world today, is the replication the duplication of me into someone else, growing someone else. That's what Jesus did with his 12 disciples for three years, pouring into them, pouring into them. So when Jesus was no longer physically there through his spirit, they could do what Jesus was doing, greater things than what Jesus was doing. And that's the whole point to a successor, to a protege, for them not to just, they might be who you were, but they will go beyond what you ever did. Who is your Timothy? I wanna show you something about the Apostle Paul and show you a little bit of his intentionality, and it's, it's mind-blowing. And we, I, we, this last May, we did a, a series called To the Church Of, and there were seven different churches that Paul wrote letters to in the New Testament. At the beginning of these letters, he introduces himself as the writer of the letter, but I've never noticed the consistency of how he includes Timothy in his introductions. I wanna, I wanna show you this. 2 Corinthians 1, 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, 
Philippians 1.1 says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. What Paul is doing, I think about how easy it would have been to be the apostle Paul looking at Timothy, because Timothy was about 16 years old when Paul first called him son, and invited him to be with, like to be with him and go with him on his travels and to be his, his mentor. So he invites Timothy at 16. Can you imagine being the Apostle Paul and you are starting churches in the most godless cities in the entire world and Timothy's over here 16, playing Roblox off to the side, you know, picking his nose and you're like, the whole future hangs on this dude. And you're like, Paul and Timothy, you know, but... <laughs> There's, there's so much intentionality that goes into this because Paul knew one thing. The church, the formation of the church cannot happen, cannot last beyond him if he was not raising someone up specifically to go beyond him. So he is raising Timothy up and he's telling the churches there is a clear leadership path forward. I have a Timothy. You have a future leader and his name is Timothy. There is a successor in leadership this is your guy. He is gonna be an important guy in the church. So let me ask you, who is your Timothy? Who are you investing in? Who will carry your life's work? Who has your legacy in mind? Who will keep the story of your life, al your life alive long after you've died? Who will carry on the spiritual mantle that you've carried in your life? We've done hundreds of funerals in this room, hundreds. And I've stood on this stage, many times there's been a casket right here. And there's been someone older in age who's passed away and I'm looking at the younger family members sitting in the room and everyone is wondering if it was a patriarch or a matriarch that's passed away, who's next up? Who did they raise up? Who carries this legacy on? How long will it be before this person's name fades into no one's memory at all? Who did they pass the baton onto? I refuse to get to the end of my life and not have a Timothy. I will have a Timothy that carries on not just my legacy, but the legacy of Christ in me. Who can go farther than I ever went? Who can build the kingdom of God in obedience to God, surrender to the Holy Spirit, go beyond anything that I've ever done? Who can do that? Only a Timothy, because Timothys are built to go beyond Paul's. Who's your Timothy? Who will carry on your legacy? The last relationship we'll talk about this morning in part one is you need a Rhoda, a little one. You need a Rhoda, a little one. Who is Rhoda? I actually talked about her a few weeks ago briefly, but Rhoda is a little girl in Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, the, there's believers that are gathered in a house, and they're praying specifically that the apostle Peter would be released from prison. Peter's in prison because of preaching and he's, and he's not obeying the authorities. I mean, he's going out and still doing what God's called him to do. So he's in prison and the believers gather. They're, they're just praying, God, release him. Provide a miracle. But there's only one person who believes what they're praying for enough to stand at the gate and watch for the miracle. The Bible says her name is Rhoda and she's a little servant girl in the house. Isn't it interesting that 
most of the time it's children who have childlike faith. It's not childish faith. Because you can go into our kids' church right now, kids' church in Maui, you can go in there right now and you're not gonna see childlike faith. You're gonna see kids that when the kids' pastor says, faith can move that mountain from there to there, they're gonna walk outside today and go, you know, they're gonna believe, right? Like, if if God said it, then I believe it. That that is childlike faith, and that's what Jesus says to have, childlike faith. Rhoda was a child, and she also had childlike faith. Your Rhoda could be a child, but it doesn't need to be a child. It needs to be someone who believes what we're preaching. When the word of God says it, I'm believing it. I'm your rock. I'm your guy, I'm your girl, I'm your Rhoda. Rhoda that day stood at the gate. She was the only one watching for the miracle that they were praying for. She was the only one. Who's the one in your life watching for your miracle? Believing when you lose belief. Your rock when you don't feel like one. Now I was thinking about my Rhoda and at different times has been different ones of our four kids to be honest with you. Again, it doesn't have to be a, a kid. And I, I, I would have a couple other Rhodas that aren't children for sure. But my eight-year-old daughter, Right now is my Rhoda. Her name is Aslan. I think I have a picture of her. And she is the most faith-filled little girl you could possibly imagine. I, I, I believe in childlike faith so much. The last few prayer and worship nights that we've had here at the church where we prayed for healing, we've brought children in with our elders to pray over people. I've always said if I was diagnosed with something terminal, I love you guys, but I'm, I'm making a stop first in kids' church. I'm gonna go in the middle of that auditorium and I'm gonna say, I need healing. Do you guys believe it? And they're like, yeah, I believe it. And they're gonna pray because it's childlike faith. They're little Rhodas. They're watching for the miracle. And Aslan is mine. She's this upbeat personality that just believes God. Doesn't just believe in God, she just believes him. God said it, oh, it's gonna be awesome. Best day ever. God is awesome, he's awesome. The other day she calls Mandy and I, she called Mandy and I into our room. It's always around bedtime that kids get philosophical, right? It's like, mom, dad, no, 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 not yet. We gotta talk. You know, it's, it's always like that. But Aslan comes up to us, she said, Hey, can I can I talk to you guys in your room real quick? And I said, Yeah, she's eight going on 40. And so we we go into our room and she sits us down and she starts getting emotional. And she, and she couldn't get out what she was experiencing and trying to get out properly. And, and, and she was saying, Mom, Dad, um, so I just want to tell you that I, I really, and she just starts crying, I really believe in God. I believe in him, and I believe in Jesus. And, and we were just like, I mean, I'm crying, Mandy's crying, and I, I don't know where the conversation's going, but she's like, I believe. And she said, I believe, I love him so much. I love God. That's what she kept on saying, I love him. I'm just like, this is something I'll remember for the rest of my life. And then she, she said, the other morning I woke up and she was crying. I woke up and she was telling God how much she loved him. And she said, and I heard God tell me, Aslan, I love you so much. And I said, you were just praying and you felt like God said that. She said, yeah, I know he loves me too. And she said, and he told me, I'm gonna tell people for the rest of my life that how much God loves them. And he, you know, and she's just crying, and she just said, he said, what you're feeling right now is what I want everyone to feel. And she said, he told me to tell everyone. And she's just, I mean, we're, we're wrecks at this point. And I, I just said, so God speaks to you? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> if I said that to an adult, they'd be like, Asm looked at me like that was the dumbest question in the entire world. In the middle of her crying, she goes, 
yeah, you're supposed to be a pastor, dad. You know, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. And you know, she, we just talked through that for a few minutes and then she leaves. My faith, I'm looking at this little girl and I'm sitting there thinking, my faith is so energized, it made me wanna go pray. And said, so why am I doubting that I can hear the voice of God? My little girl's upstairs playing in her playhouse and God's just talking to her. And we're stressing over all this stuff and, and I, my faith was built because the things we preach about, little Rhodas are looking at the gate because Peter showed up that day. When she was looking, Peter came walking up to the gate and the miracle came. Rhodas watch for miracles and the miracles come. I, 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 who's your Rhoda? Who's your little one? They can be older. I have a couple pastor friends that are Rhodas. They know most of the time, I mean, we talk a lot, but most of the time if I'm just calling them randomly, they pick up and they go, hey, you good? What's, what's going on? I'm like, I just need some encouragement. You know, like they're just, they're faith builders, right? Rhodas just believe. Who's your Rhoda? Who carries, who carries your faith for you when your faith is weak? Who's your little one? Quickly, Rhodas, four things I'll read quickly. Number one, a Rhoda has childlike faith, like I mentioned. Not childish, childlike, which just means big faith, they believe it. Two, a Rhoda keeps you young. Not physically, necessarily, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Just keeps you alive, right? Number three, Rhodas keep you light. A Rhoda will keep you light. What does that mean? The heaviness of life. You get in the car with a Rhoda, you go to coffee with a Rhoda, it's like that weight just starts coming off. They just believe for you, in your place sometimes, when your faith is weak. I'll get Aslan in the car and we'll just go to Walmart. And I get back and I feel like I just listened to the best sermon of my life, right? Because it's just like, ah, this is great. God is awesome. Life is awesome. And it's just Rhoda. And number four, Rhodas help you keep wonder alive. Rhodas keep wonder alive. They look at the world with wonder. We look at the world as going down the tubes. But Rhoda looks at the world and says, God can do anything. God can do anything. You need a Rhoda in your life. Who is your Rhoda? As we look at all of these different relationships and we build our purpose, now you see with just five. The other five will be on the YouTube video later this afternoon, but you see with just five, I at least saw when I first started looking at this, how little intentionality I was putting into any of my relationships. That if we started placing people or multiple people into these slots, again, you don't put people in a box, you don't interview a Rhoda, like let me see your faith, you know, you don't do that. You don't put them in boxes, but just this organic like, yeah, they could be, yeah, yeah. I'm starting to fill these things through intentionality as I'm investing, it's not gaining, it's not just doing this, it's investing. Who are you a Rhoda for? Who are you a Nathan for? Who are you a Jonathan for? Who are you a Timothy for? You know, who are you a Paul for? All of those things, right? As we develop these and you take these relationships seriously, it will be the next big step in discovering God's given purpose in your life. I wanna pray over you today. And again, they're gonna put the QR code up one more time um, while I'm praying for the couple minutes after about, uh, that'll take you to the link for part two. Um, and also the book. But I wanna pray just over you, blessing uh, this week. Next week, we're talking about the will of God, practical steps on how to hear the voice of God. What do you need in your life to know I am walking in the practical will of God? It's gonna be an awesome Sunday. Can't wait for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. I pray for every person here, every person in Maui, both of our campuses today tuning in. 
God, I pray that you would just expand our minds and, and, and give us intentionality as we develop these relationships in our lives. Every person within the sound of my voice, God, that we take this seriously. These principles come from your word. As we apply them, we pray it comes alive. Change our lives as we pursue our purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.